One of my favorite things in life is seeing God transform someone's life with the gospel. God works in different ways in everyone's life. No two people's story is exactly the same. But there's nothing quite like seeing the gospel take root and then begin to grow in someone's life. Here at Freedoms, we talk a lot about the gospel. And today we're talking about this topic of being transformed by the gospel. Now, the gospel simply means good news. And the good news of Jesus Christ comes and speaks into the bad news of this world. Because there is a lot of bad news in this world. We just turn on the news and we see it all over the place. But the ultimate bad news is about our sin. And about how our sin that we all have in our lives separates us from God because He is holy and perfect and we obviously are not. And one of the ultimate ramifications of that besides our separation from God is that sin also practically uh, creates a lot of problems in our world, in our lives, in our relationships, and just in, in really breaking uh, the good creation that God originally intended. But the good news that speaks into this bad news is, is that Jesus, through his perfect life, and his death, and his resurrection, breaks the power of sin and death. And he passes on his victory to anyone and everyone who would place their faith in him. So today we're talking about this topic of being transformed by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We're going to be looking in a few moments into a passage of Scripture that powerfully illustrates the life-transforming work of the gospel. But before we turn to Scripture, I want to hear a firsthand account from a woman who's here in our midst this morning. Uh, hear how God is at work in her life. So I'd like to invite Shinwei Van Harpen. Up here, uh, Shenwei and Wade uh, and their daughter Scarlett moved here to Port Washington back in early February. And they've been attending Freedons since then. Um, Wade grew up in this area originally, but then Shenwei actually grew up over in China. And Shenwei came to America back in, uh, back about eight years ago or so. And she came specifically to pursue her doctorate in math education from Illinois State University. And then more recently, she is now teaching at UW-Milwaukee. And like I said, they just moved here in February. have been attending here. God has been at work in their lives in significant ways. And I think it's also helpful to note that it was through a prior relationship with Jesse and Justine Kopp. Uh, they were the ones who invited uh, Wade and Shen Wei and Scarlett here. And it shows how God can work through us. Uh, just when we are inviting people to church, uh, just being representatives for Christ in people's lives. And so... God's been at work in Chen Wei's life a lot, um, really over the last number of years, but especially in the last couple of months. And so I'm uh, excited just to hear um, a little story of how God has worked in your life. So Chen Wei, would you be able to share a little bit about um, what were your spiritual beliefs? What, what were your beliefs in God as you were growing up in China? Sure. Um, so um, when I was young, my parents uh, used to tell me that there is a God up there who watches everything. Um, so good people would get rewarded and bad people would get punished. So everyone should try to be a good person. So then uh, after I started school, uh, schools taught me to um, think that religions are not real. They are just tools that uh, government use to control their people. Uh, in general, if something that human eyes cannot see, they just don't exist. I remember even in high school after we learned uh, Isaac Newton's three laws of motions. Our teacher said, um, you know, Newton's a great, brilliant scientist, but just so sad that he became religious in the end. 
<laughs> so um, before I came to the United States, I really didn't know anything about Jesus. Um, I read some Bible stories, but the word story in Chinese means something that people made up. So I thought those were just story, not true. Hmm. And then you came to America almost eight years ago. And it seemed like really from very early on, uh, God was at work in your life, especially through Christians uh, who had various roles in your life. And will you be able to share a little bit about how Christians influenced you uh, during the last eight years? Sure. I have so many uh, stories to share. But imagine eight years ago, I came to the United States. English wasn't very good, and I didn't know anyone. So I started going to class. Um, I, I expected to have some very hard times, especially the first semester. But pretty soon, I started to feel, oh, there are so many people who are very nice to me. Uh, one of them is um, my friend Carrie. She offered to give me a ride um, two nights uh, during the week, so I didn't have to wait for the bus late at night in a very new town, and the bus comes once an hour. So later on during Thanksgiving, she invited me to her family dinner, and then that's when I found out she actually lives in the other direction. <laughs> so I thought, oh, that's very nice of her. Hmm. Uh, another friend whose name is Andrea, she found out that uh, I have trouble reading textbooks. Um, she offered to proofread my homework every time. And she also offered to read with me every time before class. So I thought she must have a lot of time, you know. Mm. <laughs> but later on, find out that she actually has an eight-year-old son, and she's pregnant again, and she's trying to finish her dissertation, finding a job, selling her house. So I was so surprised that she would actually spend the time with me to help me. So I once asked her, "How do you all do all this with you know your limited time?" You know, she said, like, every morning I pray to the Lord uh, to give me strength to face everything during the day. Um, so later on, of course, um, in 2008, I met uh, Wade. So Wade, he, he, he was living, living in Port Washington, very happy, you know, the best town ever. <laughs> but he, his company one day told him, you, you, we need you to go to Illinois. Otherwise, you just have to leave the company. So he wasn't very happy in the beginning, but his mom told him, I believe that God sent you to Illinois for a reason. Just go. You'll see. So then he met me, and then and he brought back to me over here. Um, so all these Christian friends, I have so many friends. So they are all very kind. Um, but what's more interesting is that I think I can see the peace and the joy in their eyes. It does not matter what happens in their life. They're not necessarily leading a very easy, comfortable life, but they are strong. They, you know, doing PhD in a different language, in a different country, was a lot of hard work. So I start feel, you know, I want to live like them. I want to find out what this thing is that's so powerful. So then when my friends invited me to their church, I thought, sure, I want to know more about it. And then, I mean, you moved here to Port Washington, this great city, I guess. Uh, it is a great city, not I guess, but no, that's, those are your words. Um, you moved here just in early February, and you got involved here. And how has God been at work in your life specifically in the last couple of months? Um, so after quite a few years going to church, talking to different people, um, I was convinced that this God is true, but I still had so many doubts, not not ready. And also, 
wonder how would my friends think of me if I become a Christian. I used to be a person just like them to think, oh, that's just nonsense. So um, last year, 2012, we had a hard year looking for a job for me. We just really wanted to move back to Wisconsin um, to be close to family, and we had a great career here too. Um, so I was working really hard on my own. I made plans. I submitted resumes to all kinds of jobs. Um, I thought with a PhD, I can find a job easily. But we had some failures, and then there's not many opportunities. Um, so I eventually thought, you know, I tried everything I can. God, if you are really real, show me. If you help me find a job that my family can finally go to Wisconsin, then I'll be convinced. I'll follow you. So, and then, then there's a, in September a job opening in Milwaukee, UWM. And I thought, perfect. I like it. And then I prayed, please help me get it. So in December, we finally got this job. I thought to myself, am I ready to become a Christian? I still have so many questions. Um, so then that's when we got here. Then when Justine said there's this um, Easter experience Bible study, I thought, sure, maybe this will be an opportunity for me to answer my questions. And it just happened that the, the discussion were ha happened to answer most of my questions. So I feel like it's my time. God is really helping me here. Um, so for example, one question I used to have was, if Jesus died in such a horrible way, if he's really the son of the holy God, why would God let this happen? And why would Jesus not use his superpower to get out of it easily? So then, so in the, watching the videos and after the discussion really helped me answer those kind of questions. And also coming to church, the topic you were talking really answered a lot of my questions. For example, um, I used to have people telling me, if you believe God, amazing things is going to happen to you. I always thought, then if that's true, everybody would be having such a happy, easy time. Why there's struggle? Why bad things happen in the world? Hmm. So one day you said, no, God did not promise us that we'll have an easy life when we follow him. He just promised that we're going to have an eternal life, we'll go to heaven. Um, so things like that all of a sudden start to make sense to me. My eyes feel so opened up. And uh, I thought one day after four out of six uh, Bible study, I told my husband, you know, honey, I think I'm ready to become a Christian. <laughs> um, so then I got to talk to you after that. Um, so I think I was waiting for a turning point. And then I got to Port Washington, which is a magical town. You know, every day I drive by the lake. I wow. saw the sun Went coming out. from being out. a great city to a magical town. <laughs> <laughs> so every day I drive by the lake, see the sun coming out. I thought, you know, it's just... It, it didn't just happen. Someone designed this. Mm. I also saw that children adopted from all over the, the, the world. I thought, you know, this is not human beings' work. This is mm. God's work. Mm. So. Yeah. <laughs> that was back on, I think it was on Palm Sunday, the week right before Easter, that you 
came to that decision that you're ready to start following Christ. And then we've talked a lot about how, you know, the gospel is about more than just getting into heaven, but it affects our life here on this earth as well. And can you share a little bit, just in wrapping up, just about what difference do you see Jesus making in your life, like here and now in the coming months and the years? Um, I now uh, am able to see that whatever I do, whether it's teaching math or taking care of my daughter, I don't look at those as just work, you know, um, hard work. Now I think God is doing work through me. I'm using the gift that he, got, he gave me to do work. And when I have hard time, I don't just do, you know, get so stressed out and then count on myself to get out. And instead, I pray, um, say, I would pray for God to, to God to give me ideas, to give me um, the strength. And then also, I have been thinking about my friends and family members very much because I think I experienced the change in my heart. And I feel so you know, relieved. I used to think there's burden. I have to do all this to take care of everybody, everybody, myself, everybody. So I want my friends who still have the same struggles to experience the same thing. So they can see, they can experience joy and, and, and peace in their heart. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, I hope through my journal, uh, my journey and uh, um, you know, the change in the way I live my life, I hope it was inspiring. Inspire other people too. Yeah, specifically pointing them to Christ and the hope that is found ultimately in Him. Yeah, well, it's been so cool to see how God has worked in your life, and I mean, He's done a lot in the last couple of months, but He's really been at work throughout your life, and particularly I think about the last eight years. Countless Christians who were faithful to make the most of the opportunities to, to through their lives and through their words, be pointing you to Christ, and it's exciting to see what He's doing now and what He'll continue to do in you and in your family, and so. I'd like to take a minute just to pray for you and also just to pray for the rest of our time together this morning. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you that you love to work in people's lives. We thank you for your work in Shen Wei's life over the last a number of years and specifically here in the last few months, Lord, how you've drawn her to yourself that now she wants to place her faith in you and to follow you wholeheartedly. And we pray for your blessing on Shen Wei and on Wade and on Scarlet, Lord, that you will continue to draw each one of them closer and closer to you all the days of their life, and that you will use them to point others to the gospel as well. Father, as we turn to Scripture now and see another amazing life transformation that took place 2,000 years ago, we pray that you will open our eyes and our hearts to understand in fresh ways the transforming power of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Shenway. Well, we're, we're looking at Scripture this morning to really try to understand how does the gospel transform people's lives. You know, like I said, there's nothing that really compares in my mind with seeing God transform someone's life. Today, we're going to see a story, uh, specifically in Acts chapter 7 through chapter 9, that is an incredibly powerful story of life transformation. So I invite you, if you brought a Bible and would like to follow along, or if you grab a Bible in the chair or the pew in front of you, to turn to the end of Acts chapter 7, beginning of Acts chapter 8. We're in a series right now called Turning Points. Turning Points is all about the key events and significant shifts that took place in the early church that deepened the church, 
and also advance the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And we're seeking to apply these things to our context so that we too can grow more and more fruitful in our gospel-centered ministry here at Freedom's Church. And today we're talking about the Apostle Paul, talking about the life change that he underwent as he came to know Christ. You know, if you look at what are the turning points in the early church and rate them in terms of significance, I would say that the conversion of the Apostle Paul would be right up there at the top in terms of the most significant events that took place in the early church. Because Paul's conversion and his subsequent ministry transformed the entire shape and the direction of Christianity from then on out. Paul was a prolific church planter. Paul wrote about a third of our New Testament. And so Paul's influence still continues to impact us here today in the 21st century. Now, before we dive into this, I do want to clear something up. In this passage, we see Paul referred to as Saul. Uh, And then other parts of Scripture, he's referred to as Paul. And there's a very common misperception that God at some point changed Saul's name to Paul. Typically, people think, okay, his conversion, he did that. And we do see this happen sometimes in Scripture, where God will change a person's name for some reason. Uh, For instance, back in the Old Testament, you see God changed Jacob's name to Israel. In Jesus' ministry, Jesus met a man named Simon and said, now you will be Peter. And so, so we see several different times through Scripture where God changes people's names or gives them an additional name on top of their birth name, a name that has significant meaning. And there are a lot of people who think, okay, that's what God did with Saul. That, Saul, that God changed Saul's name into Paul. But that's incorrect because from birth, his name was Saulus Paulus. See, Saulus was a Hebrew name. Um, it, and and Paul, Saul Paul, he was Jewish, and, but he also had a Greek name. And this was because he was born as a Roman citizen. And Roman citizens, in, especially in Israel, oftentimes had two different names. And so Saul, Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. And the pattern that we see, especially in the book of Acts, is that whenever Saul or Paul is in a Jewish context relating with Jewish people, that he would use his Jewish name. And then when he was in a non-Jewish context, which was the majority of his ministry, he would use his Greek name, Paul. And so he would do this in order to best relate to the people to whom he was ministering. So I just wanted to clear that up because, you know, like I said, it's a common misperception. And it may be something that comes in your mind as we go through this passage today. But today we are looking at the transformation of Paul in his life, how he came to know Christ. And oftentimes when I work with people on writing out their testimony of how they came to know Christ, we talk about breaking your testimony into three parts. You have before you knew Christ and what your life was like then. And then you have how. What happened? What did God do in your life to bring you to Christ? And then you have the after section of, okay, how has your life changed as a result of knowing Christ? And we're going to look at this passage today in, in that before, how, after format. And so first we're going to see Paul's life before he knew Christ. And Paul, before he knew Christ, was a very violent persecutor. There's actually a very violent um, act, going, uh, act going on, a very violent event going on right when we meet Paul. And that is that a man named Stephen is being killed. He's being stoned to death. Now let me give you a little bit of background of who Stephen is. Stephen was a leader in the early church, and he specifically was very servant-minded. He loved to take care of the practical needs of people. For instance, he was one of the men who was in charge of making sure that needy widows were getting the food that they needed to survive. 
Well, one day, Stephen got into an argument with a group of Jewish people. Uh, these Jewish people were confronting him, and Stephen was standing up for Christ. And they were in this argument, and the Jewish people found out, you know, we really can't refute Stephen's arguments. Stephen is making these convincing arguments for Christ that we cannot really overcome. And so they decided to drag up some false charges, uh, some, some charges of actually of heresy and blasphemy against Stephen. And then they drug him into the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish council, the, the leadership body, the Supreme Court in Jerusalem at that time. So they drug Stephen in there and he's giving the speech in defense. And he's not so much defending himself as he's simply continuing to point to Christ. And specifically through this speech, he's talking about how down through history, God has been at work in the world. But God's work in the world is oftentimes not um, exactly the same as what humans think that God should do. And when that happens, Stephen says oftentimes God's people, the Jewish people, uh, oppose what God is doing. And so that's his speech. We're going to pick up in verse 51 of Acts 7 at the very end of the speech. And at this point, he's getting very pointed in what he is saying. He says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out, uh, out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. So we see here that Saul, who, who we also know as Paul, was right there and helped in the process of killing Stephen. Now, there's not a lot of detail given here about what Saul's role was in this, except that the people who were actually throwing the stones were laying their clothing at Saul's feet. And we know from later in Acts that was just so he could watch over their clothes because we have to understand that stoning someone to death was not a very quick act. I mean, they would use stones, something like this, and we may wonder, okay, why were they taking off their clothes? Well, one of the reasons was because it would take usually 20, 30 minutes, even longer, in order to completely kill someone who was being stoned. And it, there was some physical exertion involved in there. I mean, it wasn't just like this underhanded toss, like, here you go, here's a stone. I mean, it would be a, a full wind-up and, and, and a throw as hard as they could, usually aiming at the chest that prolonged the death versus if they were trying to hit the head. And one of the other reasons besides just exertion and not getting as sweaty, they took off their clothes. I mean, they didn't take off all their clothes, just the outer robe. But they would do that to get a better throwing motion. And so Saul's there watching over the clothes, and he says here, and Luke writes here that Saul gave approval to what was taking place in terms of the killing 
of Stephen. Saul at this point is identified as a young man. He was probably about 25 to 30 years old. But even though he was young, and in that culture, being older got you more notoriety and more respect. Even though Saul was very young, he was really an up-and-comer, rising very quickly in the leadership ranks within Judaism. But there was something that really snapped in Saul as he heard Stephen's speech or as he saw Stephen being stoned to death. Something snapped. There was a real turning point in him where instantly, uh, it would probably been welling for a time, but that was the turning point for him where he had this deep hatred for the church. And from that point on, at least for a while, his consuming passion was to completely destroy the Christian church. I mean, this was his driving passion. And we see here um, that he went actually from house to house trying to destroy the church. When, uh, we see throughout Scripture that Paul had a very fiery, passionate personality. And these types of personalities can accomplish a lot of great things if they're pointed in a good direction. But if, if those, those fiery personalities are pointed in a, in a poor direction, it can be incredibly destructive. Listen to what took place right after Stephen was stoned. It says, On that day, verse 1 of chapter 8, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison so that they could then be brought before the Sanhedrin and tried. And we know from later in Acts that Saul had quite a few of them actually put to death just like Stephen. So Saul was intentionally trying to destroy the church. He was literally going from house to house trying to identify if there were any Christians there. And if he were, if there were, he would persecute them. He'd have them arrested. And if it was his will... They would then be killed. So we see this, this tragic thing going on. That, that before Saul came to Christ, he was a very violent persecutor. And I think there's a relevant question that we need to ask ourselves. Imagine you made a list. And on that list, you, you were listing, okay, who are the people who I think are the least likely to turn to Christ? Who are the least likely that I know of to turn to Christ? I mean, I think, okay, if Osama bin Laden was still alive, he would probably be near the top of that list. But we might have other people on that list, like people who are very immoral, like Hugh Hefner. And we may have Howard Stern on that list. I mean, he's just kind of out there and is not a huge fan of Christianity. Uh, maybe you have um, someone, a, a very outspoken atheist like Richard Dawkins on that list. I mean, Richard Dawkins would be kind of similar to Paul in terms of his passion against Christianity, uh, except that he's not taking it in the, in the violence, but he still would like nothing more than to see Christianity die out. So, I mean, you may have people like that, well-known people. You may have co-workers. You may have family members on that list of people who you just don't really think they're ever likely to come to Christ. Now, if you were making this type of list 2,000 years ago, Saul, I think, would definitely be very near or at the top of that list because you see this radical passion he has against Jesus and against the church. Now let's flip over to chapter 9 to see what is going to happen next in Saul's life. Picking up in verse 1 of chapter 9, this happens a little while later, after Saul has already arrested a number of people and put them in prison and put them to death. He says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest 
and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way is another way of speaking about Christianity, if he found any Christians there, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So we see at the beginning of this passage that Saul is continuing in his violent hatred towards the church. It says literally he was breathing out murderous threats. And the imagery behind this is that of a very vicious beast, an animal that is bent on attacking others and, and really destroying them. I mean, think about a dog with rabies. Um, if you have a dog with rabies, you don't want to be anywhere around that dog uh, because you know it's, it's bent on going out and attacking someone. If it attacks something or someone, it's not going to be pretty at all. That's the picture being drawn here of Saul, that he has this intense hatred, this, this fierce anger that he is out to destroy the church in every way possible. He's on his way to Damascus. I mean, he, Damascus is about 150 miles from Jerusalem. It would take him about a week to travel there. And sometime as he nears Damascus to continue to persecute Christians, a bright light appears. And he hears this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, Lord, who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I want to point out something that happened here. That Saul was certainly not looking for Jesus. We know that he ended up coming to know Christ, being a powerful force for the gospel. But he was not in any way looking for Jesus. He was looking for Christians to, to persecute them. But he wasn't seeking out Jesus at all. And this is really indicative of anyone who comes to know Christ, who, who finds eternal life in Christ. Paul later on says in Romans chapter 3 that, that there is no one who seeks God. In Ephesians 2, he says that we are dead in our sins and transgressions. Being dead means that on our own, we aren't going to go seek life. We are spiritually blind. The only way that we are going to find Christ is if he first comes and grabs a hold of us. And that is what Jesus did with Saul. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Uh, this is a very powerful statement because it shows Jesus' association uh, with those who are being persecuted, saying, look, if my people are being persecuted, it's the same as if I am being persecuted. Frieden, at Freedens here, we support about a dozen different missionaries around the world that really try to get the gospel going around this whole world and be involved in that actively. And one of the people we support isn't actually an official missionary. He's actually a Turkish past, pastor in Turkey. But we are supporting him because Turkey is a place where there really aren't many Christians at all. And he has a fruitful ministry going on there among the Turkish people. And I received an email this last week that wasn't from him. It was from a guy who knew him over there. But the email contained a segment from this Turkish pastor. I want to read part of this because he's referring to this passage right here. He says, Jesus' words in Acts 9 really touched the hearts of those who, come, who came to our Wednesday night Bible study. 
Christ says that persecution inflicted on his children is cruelty committed against the Savior himself. This is such an awesome thing. So this pastor and these Christians who are highly persecuted in Turkey are are incredibly thankful for this reminder that the Lord Jesus understands their persecution, that he identifies with it, that he is there walking with them through it. But for Saul, this, this idea of Jesus identifying with those that he is persecuting is anything but comforting. I mean, it had to be terrifying. Because in this moment, Saul realized that he had been completely wrong. That Jesus truly was the Messiah. That Jesus was God come to earth in the form of a human being. And that, that Saul had actually been working against what God wanted to do in this world. And so it had to be absolutely terrifying for Saul at this time. And, and so he's blind here. He has three days where he doesn't eat or drink anything. And I imagine that during that time he's praying. He's just trying to sort things out in his mind because his world has been turned upside down. He already knew a lot of scripture at that point from being a Pharisee, being a Jewish leader. And I have a feeling that during that time, he was rethinking his entire ter- interpretation of scripture, now through the lens of Christ. Now God speaks to a, a Christian in Damascus named Ananias. He tells Ananias, go over there to where Saul is. He's here. Uh, he's waiting for you. Go there. I have a mission for you there. And Ananias is understandably a little bit concerned. Look with me to verse 13 of Acts 9. Ananias says, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now what I see here is God showing absolutely amazing grace to Saul. If I were Jesus, I think I I would want to kill Saul. I just want to get rid of him. I mean, he's already done so much damage to my people and my church. Let's just get rid of him and not deal with him anymore. But such amazing grace that that Jesus is not going to kill Saul. Instead, I mean, he's, he's coming there confronting Saul and calling him to something different, saying, Saul, from now on, you're going to be my chosen instrument to carry the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. I mean, such amazing mercy and grace there. But there's a deep irony that takes place here as well. Verse 16, uh, Jesus said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Previously, Saul had been very active in persecuting Christians. And we know that really when people in this world want to stand up for Christ, oftentimes people push back sometimes really, really hard. Saul had been a persecutor. But now, as he's standing up for Christ, he's going to become the persecuted. He's going to be dealing with the same sufferings that he was inflicting upon others. But he, he responds to Christ. And we see that, that he regained his sight and also that he was baptized in order to identify himself publicly that now he is a follower of Jesus. Now I want to move on to what happened afterwards. I mean, what happened afterwards is really the rest of Acts. It's most of the rest of the New Testament. But specifically, I want to look at verses 19 through 22 where it said that Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? 
And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So before, Saul was a violent persecutor of the Christian church. Then he had an encounter with Christ, repented, turned and followed Christ, and now he's going to be proclaiming the gospel from then until his dying day. And he's proclaiming the gospel here with words. Uh, like I said, he already had a, a great knowledge of Scripture. Now he's just reinterpreting it in light of Jesus being the Messiah. And he, he's, he's baffling the Jews who are trying to argue that, no, Jesus can't be the Messiah. Paul's arguing now, no, he is. But he's proclaiming Christ not just with his words, but also with his life. I mean, these people are looking at Saul and saying, isn't this the guy who was persecuting Christians? He was completely against the name of Christ, and now he's turning, and he's the biggest proponent of Christ. And they're like, wow, what's, what's taking place? How did this transformation happen? So Saul's words and his life are testifying to the transforming work of the gospel. So this is the conversion um, of Paul, one of the most significant turning points in church history. Now I want to talk about a couple questions for us to consider as we talk about applying the gospel and its transforming power in our midst. Here's the first question. Do you truly believe that the gospel has the power to transform lives? Do you truly believe this in your deepest of hearts that the gospel can transform people's lives? Paul, Paul firmly believed this, partly because he experienced, and he said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. He says anyone and everyone who believes in Christ who receives the gospel will have salvation. So the, he believes the gospel is powerful. And he oftentimes uses his own life and his own background as, as exhibit A of the power of the gospel. For instance, over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he says, here is a trustworthy saying that, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. So Paul says, you know, Jesus came to this world to save sinners. We're all sinners. Paul, referring to his persecutions of the church, says, you know, I was one of the worst. But as I look back on that and the transformation that's taken place, Paul is saying, wow, that's the power of the gospel at work. He said something similar over in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, when he says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. So Paul's saying, God gave me grace, and that grace to the gospel transformed my life. Now, I meet a lot of Christians who are very ashamed of their past. They look at just bad decisions. They made ugly times in their life that they wish they could undo, but they can't. So they're ashamed and they try to bury those things. But one of the things we need to recognize is that although we shouldn't flaunt uh, the sin and ugliness in our past, it should serve as a testimony of how God has transformed us now through the gospel. That we shouldn't be ashamed of it. God knows it. Uh, he knows that we are sinners. And he wants to transform who we are through the gospel. So, so if we have ugly pasts, but we've experienced transformation, that simply shows to illustrate the gospel all the more powerfully. 
So do we truly believe the gospel has the power to transform lives? And the second question makes this a little bit more personal. Are you and am I being transformed by the gospel? Originally, as of yesterday afternoon, this question was worded differently in the sermon. Uh, yesterday, the question was, have you been transformed by the gospel? But I realized that's an incomplete question. Because gospel transformation, even if you've been a Christian for a lot of years, is not something that just took place in the past. It's something that should continue to take place from now until your last breath on this earth. A lot of people look at the gospel as this sort of get-out-of-hell-free card. That, you know, if you believe in Christ, you'll go to heaven when you die rather than hell. And that, that is very true. That is a part of the gospel. But the gospel is much more than just that. The gospel is intended to transform our lives here and now as well. Let me give you a few ways, biblically, that the gospel should impact our lives here and now. These all come from the Apostle Paul, who's really internalized the gospel. One way the gospel transforms our lives now is that it transforms our reactions when we are wronged by other people. You know, when someone does something bad to us or mean to us, our natural reaction is to get angry, to want to take revenge, to gossip to others about how bad this person is. But listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 4, verse 32. He says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So Paul is saying, look at how much God has forgiven you through Jesus, through the gospel. You should extend that same forgiveness to those around you. So the gospel transforms the way we react when people wrong us. The gospel also transforms our self-centeredness, that we naturally like to do things our way and focus on me, myself, and I. But listen to Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here's where he turns to the gospel. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So Paul's looking back at the gospel, what Jesus has done for us through humbling himself, through serving, uh, through dying on our behalf. That certainly wasn't comfortable for him, but he did that out of great love and concern for others. And we're called to show that same love and concern to those around us. The gospel transforms our use of money. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, in the context of, of financial giving and generosity, says, look at, look at the grace and the generosity God has shown us. Extend that same generosity to others in how you share your possessions and your money. The gospel transforms our marriage. Ephesians 5, um, just one verse from that says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the gospel and Jesus' sacrificial love uh, for the church is our model for loving our spouses. And finally, the gospel uh, transforms our control of our lives. We like to be at the driver's wheel of our life, don't we? But the gospel says, no, you shouldn't be anymore. Let Christ be at the driver's wheel. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So, so Paul looks at the gospel, how Jesus allowed himself to be crucified to accomplish God's will, and how Jesus loves him through the gospel. 
And that leads Paul to allow himself to be crucified with Christ, to be surrendered wholeheartedly to Christ, to follow him faithfully. And we have to recognize this is a lifelong process. I hear Christians oftentimes say, you know, I look at my testimony, how God's worked in my life. I wish I had a more dramatic testimony. I mean, I look at Paul. I, I look at Shen Wei. I look at people who have this very clear before and after on coming to know Christ. And I wish I had something like that. I've just grown up in church a long time. I've known the gospel since I was a little kid. Well, you know what? God works differently in everyone's lives. If you are a follower of Christ, if you have salvation, you can rejoice in that and recognize the gospel still applies just as much to you as it does to the Apostle Paul or anyone else. We all need the gospel. We all need to respond to it to get salvation. And when we look at how the gospel is intended to transform our motivations and our desires and our attitudes and our words, it's going to be a lifelong process of allowing the gospel to sink into our lives and transform us from the inside out. Now, we're talking a lot about the gospel this morning, and I want to encourage you, if you're looking at your life and you say, you know, I'm not really sure that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. I don't know if I stack up in God's eyes. If you're looking at the gospel and wondering, okay, how does it really apply to my life? That happened 2,000 years ago. What difference does it make now? If you still have these questions, I know these are common questions, I want to encourage you to not just file them away and think, well, I'll address that later. I want to encourage you to think seriously about the gospel. Perhaps give me a call this week. Talk with me after church. I'd love to be able to talk with you about how does the gospel impact our lives. Our prayer team will be up here after the service. You can come talk with one of them about how the gospel impacts your life, about what it means to be a Christ follower. In closing, I want to read one of my favorite passages from Scripture, Philippians chapter 3, which shows the transformation that's taken place in Paul's life. He used to persecute Christians, but now he says, Philippians 3, 7 and 8, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul has experienced such significant transformation. That's through the gospel. And it's leading him to love Jesus with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I pray that for each one of us, the gospel will be just as real to us and that we will be growing similarly in our love for Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, you came to die on our behalf. And we pray that you will help us to internalize the gospel. To not just leave it out there somewhere, not just leave it on the intellectual level, but to receive it, to internalize it, to allow, us, allow it to transform us from the inside out. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace. We are certainly completely undeserving, but we say thank you for the grace you have shown us through Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.